This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist, keeping my eye on the economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, and no bull. May 22, 2020. No economic releases today. The stock market was relatively unchanged, down about 9 points at the end on the Dow. And uh, most of the uh, uh, worries were about U.S.-China tensions. Uh, China is... uh, considering a move that would put Chinese agencies in Hong Kong to safeguard national security, which would be a breach of the 1997 treaty, which does not allow Chinese agencies in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, on the other hand, sees it as a crackdown on dissidents and a threat to their sovereignty and says it is the end of the one country, two systems setup. Um, And also, uh, other news today was that China is not targeting annual GDP growth Uh, due to uncertainty, and that's the first time they they won't be doing that since they started doing it in 1994. On another note, the United States, uh, I believe it's Republicans, are proposing a bill that would impose sanctions on Chinese officials who impose new laws on Hong Kong that would limit Hong Kong's autonomy from China's central government, and sanctions on banks that do business with them. So if China puts uh, agencies in Hong Kong, whoever does that is going to be sanctioned by the United States, and whoever, whatever bank does business with those people will be sanctioned as well by the United States. Another quick note, uh, oil is up to $33.45 a barrel at last reading, and that's up 70% month to date. That's just an incredible rebound. That shows that uh, the commodities markets are becoming a little bit more in balance, as well as uh, showing uh, faith in a stronger economic recovery. One other note was that uh, Trump was uh, asked, you know, what would happen if there's a second wave, and he said, well, we're going to take care of it, but we're not going to shut down the country again, and that gave investors some hope too. So hopefully, if we do have a second wave, that'll remain true and we won't shut down again. We'll we'll probably have some measures in place, but it won't be quite as severe as the first time. And Dr. Anthony Fauci said he's confident that there can be some kind of remedy to the virus by the end of the year. So that also helped to uh, improve investors' moods. All right, uh, just a few notes on some uh, miscellaneous topics here. First of all, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, says uh, uh, the U.S. government is braced for uh, crisis loan losses. Steve Mnuchin said the U.S. Treasury was fully prepared to take losses on up to $500 billion set aside for loans to struggling businesses. The $500 billion rescue fund is one of the pillars of the $2.2 trillion stimulus package passed by Congress in March to help the U.S. economy weather the coronavirus pandemic. A $600 billion Fed loan program designed to help Main Street, mid-sized businesses, with $75 billion in treasury equity, is expected to be up and running by the end of the month, but has faced criticism for its excessively restrictive criteria. So they're expecting losses on those loans. The U.S. objects to the WHO vaccine access call. The U.S. has rejected language in a WHO resolution that backs the rights of poorer countries to ignore patents in order to gain access to a COVID-19 vaccine or treatment. 
Many governments, particularly in Africa, fear they will be squeezed out by richer countries unless they can force companies that discover anti-COVID-19 therapies to share their intellectual property with manufacturers able to produce them cheaply at scale. The World Bank is sounding the alarm on extreme poverty. Up to 60 million people will be pushed into extreme poverty by the economic consequences of the coronavirus crisis, and current recovery efforts are not enough. The bank expects world economic output to, co to contract as much as 5% in 2020, erasing efforts over the past three years to alleviate poverty in the poorest countries. Global fund managers warn that uh, the bull run is doomed without a coronavirus vaccine. The second wave of the coronavirus cases topping their, is topping their list of worries. Only 10% of those surveys, surveyed expected a V-shaped economic recovery. Equities are now back at the same levels as the summer of 2019, which is of course remarkable if you remember that the global economy and corporate earnings could be down by as much as 20%. Americans are buying bikes and TVs and DIY materials during the pandemic. Americans have been splashing out on goods from toys to exercise bikes, even as the economy falls into recession and unemployment surges to a post war high. U.S. retail sales dropped 16% last month, the biggest decline since records began in 1992. Home improvement was a favored category of all of the uh, items that were purchased. Consumers were spending some of the cash on products that could help them recreate outdoor activities in the home. And another just reframing of the risk from China. Beijing is preparing to impose national security legislation on Hong Kong in a show of legal force that is likely to reignite the territory's pro-democracy movement and exacerbate tensions between Beijing and Washington. China's parliament intended to draft the legislation and enter it directly into Hong Kong's mini-constitution, or basic law, in a process that will bypass the territory's legislative council. So you can see why Hong Kong is very unhappy about this. Business activity stirs across the Eurozone. The downturn in activity across the Eurozone has begun to ease as lockdowns introduced in some of the largest economies to help stem the spread of the virus are relaxed. The bloc remains, however, on course for historic economic contraction in the second quarter of this year. The U.S. is at risk of a second coronavirus wave, warns public health chief. The rapid spread of coronavirus in the southern hemisphere suggests it is likely to flare up again in the U.S. this autumn and winter, raising the possibility of a second round of lockdowns this year. This will have to increase. This, the U.S. will have to increase its disease tracking capabilities rapidly to avoid another public health crisis. I was just watching uh, news last night. They were talking about contact tracing and. I got to tell you, on the one hand, it might be needed, but on the other hand, like I've been saying before, it's going to be very, very controversial, and uh, it could really cause a lot of tension in society. Let's just put it that way. Low-income ethnic minority Americans suffer the most from the pain of unemployment. The total number of first-time applications uh, is up to 38.6 million since the pandemic hit the world's largest economy nine weeks ago. Unemployment rate was at 14.7% in April. Of the 21.4 million jobs lost during April across the economy, by far the biggest chunk, roughly 8.2 million people, has come from the leisure and hospitality sector. Retailing also took a huge hit with about 2.2 million job cuts over the course of the two months. Pain was even more widespread. Professional business services, such as temporary office workers, also shed 2.2 million positions, and healthcare experienced a similar decline as people shied away from routine medical and dental appointments. Almost half of all U.S. adults live in a household 
excuse me, almost half of all adults, U.S. adults, live in a household that has lost income due to the pandemic. The Mall of America has skipped payments, uh, and that signals a threat to mortgage-back debt. The Mall of America is in my home state, just a few minutes down the highway from me. And uh, it's the biggest shopping mall in America, and it's delinquent on its $1.4 billion in mortgage in an, in an ominous sign of how the pain in U.S. retail is infecting the $500 billion market for commercial mortgage-backed securities. The owner of the Mall of America, a more than 2 million square foot complex in Bloomington, Minnesota, that boasts a Nickelodeon Universe indoor theme park and more than 500 stores, missed its mortgage payments in both April and May. The mall, which was valued at more than $2 billion in 2014, closed its doors in response to the virus in March. The troubles facing the Mall of America, which is planning to reopen in June, are shared by other property owners grappling with lockdowns. Some 7.3% of loans bundled into commercial mortgage-backed security deals were 30 or more days overdue in mid-May. Now, just uh, one other note here. Uh, three gentlemen, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, what has happened to their fortunes throughout all of this? Bill Gates' fortune during the pandemic has actually, very surprisingly, declined by $4.3 billion. Next up is Mark Zuckerberg, increased by 46% to $80 billion. And Jeff Bezos increased by 31% to $147 billion. So, you know, $147 billion net worth. It's all good, right? Don't have to worry about a pandemic. Don't have to worry about anything. All right. Now on to the meat and potatoes of today's podcast, which is a an overview of the update of the model being used by the Minnesota Department of Health and University of Minnesota. And uh, this is going to be interesting for you to hear. So if you're not really paying attention right now, (laughs) put everything down that you're doing, sit down, stop doing whatever you're doing, sit down and listen, because this is very important, especially for Minnesotans. The previous versions used data from... This is now version 3 of their model. The previous versions used data from China. The new version uses U.S. and Minnesota data. I did not know that. I mean, I guess it it makes sense because, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of data for the U.S. and Minnesota when they first started trying to model this uh, pandemic. But it just is interesting to see that, you know, they were using data from China to figure out what to do uh, policy-wise in Minnesota. All right. The extent and impact of key metrics is still very uncertain. U.S. case data are limited and incomplete. For example, outcomes of cases are unknown for half of cases. Discharge or death status is unknown for almost half of cases, and many patients remain in the hospital. Now, the structural changes to the model include uh, accounting for asymptomatic infections and deaths occurring outside of the hospital. Uh, They restricted the ICU metric to ventilated cases only. 
They updated parameter estimates using newly available, newly available U.S. data, and they included new calibrated parameters such as the proportion of age 70 and older dying in non-hospital settings and a reduction in contacts under social distancing and stay-at-home order. They fit the model to Minnesota deaths and hospitalizations through April 25th. The model can't accommodate clustering in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. Let me repeat that. The model can't accommodate clustering in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. In other words, the impacts of the fact that these people are living so close together and are old and have underlying health conditions, all three factors of which are very important in, in determining the rate of spread of the disease, at least in nursing homes and long-term care facilities, the clustering factor is not accounted for in the model. So that suggests that the model is right there not very reliable, considering 80% of all deaths have been in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. So, uh, I mean, that's just, that's mind-boggling. Uh, you would think that all the intelligent people that are working on this would be able to figure something out to, to account for that, but they haven't done that. They are going to try to do that in the next, uh, the next version, I think, though. Uh, the outcomes of the model are that it is, we have a less time to peak epidemic and higher estimates for ICU demand and total fatalities. The reasons are the calibration to uh, they are calibrating to rising Minnesota fatalities. Uh, mitigation is less def less effective than assumed for initial physical distancing, which uh, was 38% reduction in contacts instead of what was assumed to be 50%, and the stay-at-home order, which is a 59.5% reduction in contacts instead of assumed 80%. In the, in the previous versions. Uh, the changes to ICU mortality assumptions and data uh, include the fact that they now know that if someone needs a ventilator and can't get one, they will die, or at least a very high probability. So they're pretty much saying if, if, uh, if someone go, gets, needs a ventilator and can't get one, that they're going to die. Now, uh, comparing the versions of the model, version 2 had a weeks until peak epidemic of 16, version 3 was 13 weeks. Weeks until ICU capacity reached, same. Version 2, 16 weeks. Version 3, 13 weeks. So it's a little earlier than the previous version. Uh, the top ICU demand, which assumes everyone who needs a ventilator can get one, uh, version 2 was 3,700 and version 3 was 3,600, but the range was wide and the top of the range was higher than for version 2. But this is crazy. Uh, the current demand for ICU beds is 215. And the IHME model from the University of Washington projects a peak ICU demand of 550 beds. And the version 3 model for the Minnesota Department of Health model is saying peak demand would be 3,600 ICU beds, 18 times more than what is needed currently. I mean, that is just, that is just ridiculous. If you ask me, I mean, that, wow. That's, that's just incredible. Current capacity is 2,200 beds, which includes the three, uh, the IHME model shows that there's only 355 beds 
that are available in Minnesota. But I don't think it, it obviously it doesn't include the recent additions to capacity that Minnesota has made over the last month or so. Um, either either capacity that's online now or capacity that could be brought online very, very soon with, without much notice. So uh, they're saying the capacity is 2,200 beds. Right now, the current demand for beds is 215. Folks, that means there's a 2,000-bed cushion in Minnesota right now. What does that tell you? That tells you that the curve has been flattened or at least... Uh, we have more than enough capacity, ten times capacity that ten times more capacity than we need currently. So, to me, that says open the state. Mortality for twelve months uh, for version two was twenty one thousand eight hundred. Version three is twenty nine thousand deaths over twelve months. This again is crazy, because. In the first three months of this pandemic, we have only had 800 deaths total. If you project that out, that's 2,400 deaths a year if we stay at this same rate. 2,400. And they're expecting 2,400 deaths in 12 months. And they're saying the, uh, the mid-range or the average of the range of their forecasts for version 3 is 29,000 deaths. This is insane. Uh, the range is 16,000 to 44,000. I mean, what in the world are they basing this on? You know, I was watching the video that was talking about all this, and when people ask questions on why the models are forecasting such high rate of deaths and ICU bed, their answers were very vague, almost to the point where I really couldn't even take any notes on it because I didn't really know what they were saying or how to put it in any kind of words that anybody would understand. So, oh, wow, I don't, you know, this is just, this is just crazy. And... Mortality through the end of May, version 2 did not have a forecast. Version 3's forecast is 1,700 fatalities through the end of May. Again, we have 800 deaths total so far in Minnesota. And they're saying in the last two weeks of May, we're going to have another 800 to 900 deaths by the end of May. So... 800 deaths in the first three months, 900 more deaths in the last two weeks. I mean, that's just, it makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And the IHME model from the University of Washington, again, their forecast is 1,800 deaths. But that's by August 4th. Minnesota is projecting 1,700 deaths by May 31st. The Minnesota forecast is way off. Let me just put it that way. And if you take a look at the different scenarios, scenario one, unmitigated. In other words, there's no shutdown, there's no lockdown. Scenario five, stay at home until May 18. Scenario six, stay at home until May 31. Uh, 
the stay-at-home order was partially lifted on May 18, so we'll go with that one. The projected mortality through the end of May is 1,441 deaths. Compare this to the scenario that for unmitigated, where the where what which is what would have happened if there were no shutdown orders put in place. That scenario forecasted 42,000 deaths by the end of May. 42,000. In other words, by shutting down the economy, we reduced mortality by 97%. Uh, wow, that's just really hard to, to fathom. Uh, so, I mean... Again, so many of these deaths were from nursing homes. And yeah, when people are out in society and they're going into nursing homes and visiting people, they're going to spread the virus. But how much of the nursing home deaths would have been prevented? Or how how many people would have died in nursing homes had we not had the shutdown versus how many people we saved? I mean, it's just really complicated. But what I'm saying is that uh, you know, they were projecting 42,000 deaths without the stay-at-home order. That's just, that's just crazy. That's crazy. Um, originally, I think uh, the first report I, I read when this pandemic first started was that 74,000 people in Minnesota would die by the end of the pandemic. Uh, I'm not sure if they, I'm not sure if there was a 12-month forecast or what. But that's kind of close to this 42,000 that they're talking about, as opposed to the 1,441 they're talking about by the end of May. Um, and again, here it is, May 22, and we're just over 800. Uh, the, the, the level of, or the, uh, the amount that this model is off is just striking, is what I'm trying to say. Also, contact tracing is not a factor in the model, and they hope to develop that in it with a separate model. Uh, so that could be coming. And the other interesting note is that the scenario with the flattest ICU demand peak would require a stay-at-home order through September 7th. Well, that's not going to happen now because we've already lifted some of the restrictions, but uh, it just goes to show you what they were looking at and what they are still looking at in, in, in case, you know, things get bad again. But uh, um, keeping people locked up till September 7th, people are already going crazy. Locking them up till September 7th uh, is not going to work, was not going to work, is not going to happen. And if they try it, uh, we're going to have real big problems. Okay, and... Now we have another comparison, scenario six, which is a stay-at-home order until May 31st, versus a scenario which is 70% sensitivity on testing, which is low quality, and 10,000 tests per day. Right now we're at about 5,000 tests a day, I think, 4,000, something like that. Um, And so the mortality through May was predicted to be uh, 1,430, and the full epidemic, so for 12 months, 26,914. Uh, another scenario where we had better testing, 95% sensitivity and 
and tw twice as many tests per day, 20,000, shows 1,375 1, deaths by the end of May and a full epidemic mortality, 22,589. So again, even in these scenarios where we have a lot of testing going on and, and a lot of good testing going on in, in, the, second, in the third scenario, we're still showing almost twice as many deaths by the end of May as we have right now with one week to go. I mean, it's just, just again, the numbers just don't add up. Numbers just do not add up. And we have another uh, comparison, a scenario where, there, uh, where we follow the CDC recommendations to open the economy. Again, that would be 1,388 people dead by the end of May. And if we open the economy with treatment, 1,388 people dead by the end of May. In other words, no change whatsoever by the end of May. But there's a slight decrease in deaths by about 1,000 for the full epidemic from 26,294 to 25,392 if we open and get some kind of treatment going. Moving on. Now they showed all of these scenarios uh, with a bunch of, you know, these curves uh, on daily fatalities. And the highest curve, which was scenario one, which was by far, you know, there's no mitigation whatsoever. They were looking at about uh, 1,600 deaths per day at the peak. Scenario eight is the most optimistic scenario where you have uh, a elongated or uh, I think it, this is the one that has a shutdown until September 7th and also includes high quality testing and a lot of testing and treatment. That curve shows about mm, about 200 deaths a day and one of the participants on the call yesterday or on the call on May 13th asked a very interesting question saying how can you project these deaths per day at you know 50 or 60 deaths per day that would be needed to reach your numbers when we haven't even had one day since the pandemic started where we've had any more than 30 deaths a day and the most optimistic scenario here is showing uh 200 deaths per day I mean, again, just jaw-dropping to try to understand where they're getting their numbers and how they are justifying using these numbers for any kind of policy-making recommendations, considering they're not matching what we're seeing in the real data, which is just over 800 deaths in the first three months of the pandemic. It, you know, it it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And that would be, well, that's an average of about 9 or 10 deaths a day, uh, 800 for three months, probably a little bit more than that because it probably hasn't been quite three months yet. Uh, I don't know when our first case was in Minnesota, but again, this is just, the numbers just do not add up at all.
for future research, they were, they want to do more and better U.S. data. Uh, we want to use more and better U.S. data. They want evidence of home treatment impacts. They want to incorporate impacts of contact tracing, and they want to model cycling mitigation, which means what would happen if we had, you know, a shutdown, then a reopen, then another shutdown, then another reopen, then another shutdown, then another reopen. So that's what they mean by cycling mitigation. Uh, they also said flattening the curve allows more time for increased testing, treatment, and understanding of the pandemic or, or how the virus uh, spreads. The purpose of the model is showing general directions, not predicting absolute numbers. Well, <laughs> no model is going to be right, but as somebody said, all models are wrong, some models are useful. You've heard that quote before. The range of uncertainty in the projections is very wide. I'll show you that in a second here. Uh, projections may be pessimistic, but are plausible, they say. And what's interesting is they said, this information is educational, not political or suggesting policy recommendations. Well, my response to that is, the governor is using your model for policy recommendations. So how can you possibly say this is just for educational purposes? I mean, what, what do you think he's basing his decisions on? Um, I'm sure he's looking at more than one model, but your model is most definitely one of them. It's the University of Minnesota, Minnesota Department of Health. You can't tell me that he's not using this model in some way, shape, or form to uh, form his policies. And when the numbers are off this bad, you can see why there are so many people that are upset that uh, he's not allowing certain businesses and churches and, and sports and other establishments to reopen because the numbers just don't match up. So one thing I wanted to show is that they show the parameters for the model. In version 3, the parameter for the ICU mortality rate, in other words, the probability of dying is less than, is 0.05%, the range of the probability of dying in the ICU is 0.05%, not 5%, but 0.05%, so way less than 1% at the bottom of the range, to 78%. What? That's the range? That's the probability range? Less than 1% to 78%? That's pretty much the whole spectrum. <laughs> That's pretty much the whole 0 to 1 probability spectrum. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. It's just, uh, it's just incredible. All right, so the bottom line is with this model that they're using to help figure out what to do with trying to limit trying to limit the spread of the virus while supposedly trying to revive the economy is way way off. The numbers just do not add up and I just cannot believe for the life of me that they are using this model for anything. As a matter of fact, as far as I'm concerned, they shouldn't even be sharing this model at all. It's it's that bad. Uh, so, anyway, that's uh, I just showed you the facts and gave you a, a tiny little opinion here and there as to what I think. And you can um, re-listen to this if you want, and you know, come up with your own conclusions as to you know what you think about this model and what you think about the governor's actions based on what this model is saying. All right. An update on the coronavirus itself for the world. Death rate was 6.44% yesterday, down from 6.48% the prior day. 
Growth rate in fatalities was 1.5%, up slightly from 1.4%. If the if the uh, seven-day moving average of 1.4% holds true through the end of May, we would have 383,519 fatalities. And if it holds through holds true through the end or through August 4th, we would have 938,829 fatalities. Let's hope that this thing slows down a lot sooner than that. As for the United States, the death rate was 5.94% yesterday, down slightly from 5.96%, and the growth rate in fatalities was 1.5%, same as the prior day. If the 1.4% uh, seven-day moving average, which is the same as that for the, for the, for the world, which is interesting. If the if that moving average holds true through the end of May, we would have 110,958 fatalities. And uh, as of yesterday, we had 96,354. So we'd have about about 14,000 more. And if it held true through the uh, through uh, August 4th, we would have 277,676 fatalities. And for my uh, tip of the day for how to stay sane during unemployment, tip number 30 falls under the third commandment of try new things. Tip number 30 is try new exercises. If you're unemployed and feeling down and depressed, uh, one of the best things you can do is exercise. And one of the best things you can do when you exercise is try a new exercise so that you're not stuck in the same rut of your old exercise. And just, if you know, if you're doing the same things, Oftentimes you will have the same thoughts in your head. So when you try new things, that helps your brain to focus on whatever this new thing is that you're doing, whether it is going to new places or meeting new people or listening to music or, or reading new books or trying new exercises. When your brain is focusing on something it's used to, then other thoughts can seep into your head. Bad thoughts, if that's what's in your head right now. But if you try something new, then your brain has to shift its focus because it's not used to this new thing you're doing. And so that can help to push out the bad thoughts that you have in your head for the time being. So try new exercises, yoga, martial arts, uh, jogging if you've never jogged before, bike riding if you've never bike ride before. If you can find somewhere to swim, swim. You know, if the beaches around you aren't, aren't closed. Um, heck, you can go, jog, you know, running up and down hills or stairs or, or um, you know, aerobics or something. I don't know. Uh, Pilates, Peloton something just try something new get your body moving and get your mind off of your your negative thoughts that you currently have that will really help you a lot that is all i have for today please subscribe and follow me if you like what you hear and spread the word uh, listen to previous episodes if you'd like and this is ed cashmark the everyday economist please stay safe and stay sane thanks for listening have a great weekend and for those in the united states have a great memorial day weekend and enjoy your three-day weekend. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like the weather is going to be so great in Minnesota, but hopefully we can eke out a little bit of sunshine before the weekend is over. Take care, everyone.